Support for this podcast is provided by Cressa. Cressa is the occupier's champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle, from workplace strategy and discovery through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to cressa.com Portland to connect with the Portland advisory team. From that cast creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week, I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Well, thanks for doing this. Uh, quite interesting time. So the, you know, we <laughs> scheduled is. this a, a while ago and you know, I wanted to talk about your podcast, you, but in light of just everything that's going on, we will touch on COVID briefly. Don't sure. want to spend too much time of it, but uh, for the folks that you know, don't know much about you, I'd love for you just to start uh, you know, giving us a background of who you are and your role at, over at OHSU. So um, I, uh, my name is Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor here at uh, the Oregon Health and Science University, and um, I uh, am a hematology oncology doctor. So I do blood blood based cancers for my in my clinical practice, and I do research in health policy, the intersection of cost of cancer drugs, how we approve cancer drugs, and and and, and sort of in that space. And how long have you been at OHSU again? Now? Five years. Five years. And it's, so. Yeah. And it's, um, it's coming to an end, actually. I've took in, taken a job at the University of California, San Francisco. So I'll be moving on uh, in the next month or two. Oh, wow. Congratulations. My, uh, my sister-in-law is uh, a nurse at UCSF. So oh, wonderful. Great, great place. They're in, uh, yeah. as you know, uh, lockdown right now. Yeah. So. <laughs> all the five counties are in lockdown. Yeah. So, well, let's, let's uh, touch on COVID to start <clears throat> and then we'll go sure. from there. So I think... You know, I think a good place to start, uh, I know you're an oncologist, but I saw you've kind of tweeted a couple things is let's just start with the data and let's, we're hearing a lot about these models and, um, you know, we might be making decisions on just not reliable data. So what, where are we kind of at with that? I mean, I, it's pretty early on. I would just love to get your opinion on that and thoughts. Well, I guess I should say that, you know, I'm not an expert. I haven't tracked it so closely, but I think that, um, obviously, you know, the data, I think that people are talking about that they want to know more about is. Uh, what percent of people are being tested, what percent of people uh, have COVID-19 in the test, um, and how do you make sense of different statistics from different countries where tests are available to different degrees? And I think that's a real challenge because uh, in some countries, like our country, uh, testing is virtually, at least in, at least uh, sort of at our institution at the present time, it's extremely difficult and, right. and almost non-existent. So it's very hard to get sort of comparable statistics. Yeah. And I mean, as far as, you know, what we're doing, the country's doing uh, now with all these, uh, the recommendations, I mean, do you think just in your medical opinion, you think that will help things for now? I mean, just this, the general social distancing and you know, all this you see on social media, flattening the curve. I know there's um, validation to that, but as far as you think it's warranted all these are these things we're doing. 
I guess I'd say one, I have not formally studied it, but I will say this, you know, medically, all of these sort of interventions will definitely uh, work to lower the transmission rate and work to sort of change the rate at which people present with this condition. Uh, so that's the medical side of it. But the policy decision, I think, is a very difficult decision because mm -hmm. policy decisions have to weigh um, the impact, I think, on sort of the direct impact. So what will it do for this disease, this population, people presenting with this condition? How does that factor in healthcare availability? What will it also do to people with all the other illnesses and diseases out there, right. their ability to access care, their ability to get the medicines they need? And then what will it do to the economy? What will it do to people's livelihoods? What will the downstream effects of those be on human health? So in terms of a policy decision, I think, you know, having me speculate about it is, is, is probably not, not the best, um, not There's the a lot best. of other think, people on Twitter doing speculating. I, well, yeah, I, I, I categorically disagree. I mean, I think if you really want to answer that question, you need sort of a team of policy experts, you know, right. sequestered in a room. And hopefully that's sort of the level of, um, of expertise they're getting at, uh, at federal levels. So I do think it's, it's a very tricky decision in how you sort of do these kind of modeling exercises. And you have to take into account, I think, a lot of externalities when you start imposing very broad restrictions on commerce and movement and things like that. Uh, so it's, it's, I don't envy them. I think yeah, good luck to them. Yeah, exactly. It's com it's a complicated and interesting time. I mean, we'll, we'll, we're already seeing some kind of effects on the economy here locally in Portland. So of course, yeah, uh, we'll see. Well, well, let's get into a little more about you. Uh, yeah. one of the reasons, you know, I'm not, uh, in the medical field at all. I know your podcast, uh, plenary sessions has become very popular. So I wanted to get into that. But what I love about you is, uh, you, you're not afraid to kind of, uh, on, whether on Twitter and your podcast, uh, kind of take on or make some comments about big pharma and, you know, just the price of drugs. So uh, what's, uh, how do your colleagues look at that? And just, I would love for you to just kind of expand on that. Well, I guess I would say that, um, you know, I'm very concerned about the price of cancer drugs. I think, um, the system is fundamentally broken, and that's why we have prices the way we do. The price is not explained by how good cancer drugs are. It's not explained by how much they cost to develop them. It's not explained by how much it costs to manufacture them. It's not explained by any rational factor. It's really sort of a, a broken system where there are very little downward pressures. Uh, for instance, you know, all cancer drugs that are approved by the FDA have to be paid for by Medicare, and Medicare is not allowed to negotiate the price. And when you have a system like that, the real question isn't uh, why do drugs cost so much? The real question is why don't they cost even more? Because the company could charge a million dollars a pill and you'll have to pay. Right. Um, and the reason they don't cost more is they are afraid of only public outrage. Um, and so they, they march together lockstep. But you made, a, I guess, a couple other points, which is, am I critical of the industry? I guess to some degree, I am critical of the industry, but I'm not really critical of the industry because the industry uh, will do what's in their best interest, which is profit maximization. Mm -hmm. The failure is on our side, on the public side, the regulation side. It's our job to regulate the industry, and we have failed to do so. And so I, I'm more critical of what we can do as regulators. And then the last part of your question was, you know, what does this mean for your colleagues? And I would say, actually, among practicing oncologists, um, we're all frustrated. We're all frustrated by how expensive these drugs are. In many cases, that the drugs don't offer the benefits we want for our patients, how difficult it is for our patients to pay when our patients can't afford prescriptions, when they come to us and say, I had a $7,000 out-of-pocket bill. Um, it frustrates all of us. So I think there's a lot of sympathy from oncologists that this is a serious problem. 
Yeah. And do some of them say, Hey, even I maybe uh, tone it down on a, a, your roast on Twitter a little bit, or are they supportive? <laughs> are they supportive of you? Or uh, I think curious. there's, there's two types of people. There are people who don't go on Twitter at all. So they're not even uh, <laughs> right. there, there to notice. <laughs> yeah. And then there are people who go and they realize that uh, yeah, when you're on Twitter, you know, and you talk about anything, the gloves come off real quick. So I think, uh, I think I haven't gotten too much of that feedback. Right. Well, let's get into your podcast. Uh, you know, I have been doing my podcast for a few years now. It's podcasts have been around a long time. They're not new, but it seems the past probably four years they're exploding. So take me to your decision to, to start your own, the intention behind it and where it's at now, because it is becoming very popular amongst the medical community. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think especially among people training to be oncologists or hematologists, which is my specialty, I guess I would say, um, the reason I started is really simple. I listen to a lot of podcasts. So I, I live in Portland. I bike to work. It's a lengthy commute. takes me on the Springwater Corridor. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's relatively safe to bike on the Springwater. There are no cars. So I listen to podcasts while I bike. And um, I've enjoyed so many of them from sort of the popular ones to specialty ones. And, and recently, a couple of years ago, I got into a podcast uh, about law. Um, this was a podcast about the Supreme Court. And it was okay. told from the point of view of people who've worked on the court with the expertise of the court. And it was, I think, a technical podcast. They didn't try to dumb anything down. And yet it was entertaining and upbeat, and I really like it. And so I thought to myself, you know, this just doesn't exist in my field of cancer medicine. Um, can I bring this over and do something like that? And so about a year and a half ago, I started, um, I started the podcast plenary session. How about you? What was your background that led you to the podcast? Yeah, so I run also a series of events here in Portland for yeah. executives, so different like CFOs, COOs. And honestly, uh, but I, it was selfish for me is like, I'm just really interested in people's stories, like their career, uh, their thoughts on Portland and Oregon yeah. in regards to business. So it was really selfish for me to start it because I just, I'm curious naturally. And you get to hear from people, yeah. Right, and so um, as I've been doing it, it's, it's obviously as Portland grown uh, in regards to business, uh, it's, I think people are just interested to hear what's going on here. Um, but it's a great format. And especially now with people just, as you know, commuting, like you said, every minute they want to consume something. Um, so that's why another reason I think podcasts have really exploded, and especially now that people are in their houses all day. So mm -hmm. we'll see. So um, you started it. Uh, did it get picked up by the medical community? Is that why I started getting traction or how did uh, it, it kind of start, you start promoting it? I guess, uh, I mean, I haven't done much to promote it. I just, yeah. uh, you know, I'm active on Twitter and I have people who follow me who are interested in cancer medicine, drug policy, these kinds of issues. And I just kind of started posting links to it. And then I guess mm -hmm. between links and word of mouth, um, I hope, and I think it's reaching the audience I want it to reach, which is, you know, people, who, lay people who are interested for sure. Right. Um, but maybe even more than that, I want to reach uh, people who are training to be an oncologist. And I think that's sort of the group in which we have the broadest appeal. Mm -hmm. And well, tell us about where you, you train. Cause I, did, I read a little bit. Was it Chicago, right? Yeah, I did okay. my medical training at the University of Chicago. And then I did residency at Northwestern. Uh, my folks uh, lived in, you know, the suburbs of Chicago for a long time. Uh, and then I went to the DC area to the National Cancer Institute to do oncology and hematology. Um, and then I came out here to Oregon about five years ago to start on the faculty. So that's been my sort of trajectory. Well, let's, I know you're going to be moving. We're, we're sad to see it, you go, but no. let's talk about your time in Portland. Yeah, how's it been Portland. for you? Yeah. How's it been for you professionally? What's your thoughts on, I mean, uh, just being at OHSU, it's, it's, a, it's a large hospital and a lot of research going on. So I'd love for you to just get your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, I guess I would say, um, well, I mean, first living in Portland, I think uh, Portland's the gem on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably my favorite city. Uh, and even though I'm moving to the Bay Area, I guess, uh, you know, I have a lot of things about Portland that are appealing to me. It's a little bit smaller. Traffic's better. Uh, you know, it's more affordable. It can actually, uh, yeah. you know, have a place to live. Um, uh, and in terms of sort of working at OHSU, I would say that, you know, I think um, I'm in the cancer medicine department and uh, I do a lot of clinical duties uh, across different, you know, for patients who have cancer. And that's been deeply rewarding and taking care of people from Oregon has been, you know, a pure pleasure. Um, in terms of my research interest in policy, um, I'm kind of a little bit sort of a lone person. You know, I'm the only person I think in the entire sort of cancer division department that uh, does healthcare policy work. And I guess one nice thing about moving to UCSF is I'm going to be joining a group of, you know, maybe 100, 200 people who do this kind of work. So, oh, wow. Um, so that's kind of a nice, a nice transition, but, um, yeah, it's been a pleasure to take care of Oregonians all these years and, uh, I really enjoyed it. So we'll talk about some of the, can you, can you talk about some of the research you've, you've done wild oats issue or some of the things you focused on and, and maybe even some of the things that as you transition to your new role that you'll be kind of, uh, revving up. Yeah. yeah. I guess I'd say like we do research on a few different spaces. So one thing we're interested in is, um, uh, low value practices. So things we do in medicine, um, that are low value or no value that really just don't work. And they've been passed along by tradition. Another thing I'm interested in is how cancer drugs are approved. I think we have more drugs coming to the market uh, than ever before, uh, but largely that's been because the standard for what it takes to bring a drug to market has been falling. And so as you lower the bar for approval, you can get a lot more drugs through, but it doesn't mean they're going to be transformative drugs. Mm. I guess we in Oregon are lucky that um, one of the drugs that was developed here, Gleevec, probably the single most transformational and best drug in the last 30 years. Wow. Gleevex is a drug that, you know, almost restores normal life expectancy to people with a certain type of cancer. But in contrast, the average drug that comes to market improves survival about 2.1 months. That's mm-hmm. the average of 70 drugs uh, of the last 71 drugs approved in sort of a consecutive period of time. And so the difference between a Gleevec and a 2.1 month survival benefit, it's a world of difference. You know, Gleevec adds something on the order of 20-some life years, and, this, and the average wow. drug is 2.1 months. So um, that's, a, that's a huge difference. And yet the pricing doesn't reflect that difference. Um, and, and there are many drugs, maybe two-thirds of drugs that come to the market. We don't even know if it has 2.1 months or, or less or more. Uh, they've never been tested in that way. Um, so these kinds of issues in, are interest to me. You know, how are we starting new practices? Uh, and I'm also interested by the financial conflicts that many expert physicians have. And I think that these issues are intertwined, that the reason the bar is dropping, the reason we're enthusiastic about drugs that, you know, may add just days, you know, there's a drug that adds 10 days of survival, Mm. or drugs that we don't even know if it adds any days to your life. The reason we're enthusiastic for it is that so many experts are conflicted with the pharmaceutical industry. So that's part of the work we do. Yeah. And so when you move to uh, UCSF, uh, what are some of the projects you're going to be uh, jumping into or, or starting up? Or yeah, research? so I guess yeah. maybe at any time we're doing like maybe 15 or 20 projects on kind of cancer drugs and how they're approved and their pricing. We're also looking into, you know, medical practices that should be de-adopted or sort of discontinued. Um, and we're interested sort of, I think, in data. And I guess so we're kind of just going to continue things. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been having a scratch pad, writing down some ideas of things <laughs> that we're going to start up when we get there. But and anytime you move universities, it's a, at least sort of a year or so that it takes you to kind of build your group up and get things going the way they were before. So it'll, it'll be a slow start, I think. Right. Well, let's get into your books. And this is, you have a book 
coming out has not been released yet. Is that right? That's right. It's called, yeah, Malignant. It's coming soon. And when is it being released? Uh, April 21st, 2020, barring any uh, unforeseen events. Right. Okay. Well, let's, well, let's get into that. This, cause this is the second book you've written. Yeah, is it's my right? second book. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about your first book. Uh, okay. Can, can you just give a little overview of that and let's, and about your new book as well? Yeah, so I guess I'd say like the, the books are really geared for a lay audience. And so that's what we're shooting for. The first book is called Ending Medical Reversal. Um, and it's really about, um, and it got a lot of criticism that it didn't have a more punchy title. Um, <laughs> uh, but it's really about all of the things that we have recommended in medicine that we flip-flop about. Things that we said to do for years that we flip-flop and say now, you know, don't do it at all. Uh, whether that's don't eat eggs or eat eggs or don't eat butter, now eat butter, uh, versus take this pill, now don't take it, or have this surgery, now never do it again. Um, those kind of flip-flops. We want to know where they come from, what drives them, why they gain popularity, why they flip-flop, and what you can do to avoid them, which is a whole chapter of the book. Mm. And so this came out about five years ago, and I think it's been pretty popular. Um, and uh, so that's the first book, Medical Reversal. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's still very timely and explains a lot about why yeah. the New York Times headlines flip-flop. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your new book. Like, uh, yeah, so the, the new book is purely a cancer book and it's called Malignant. And I think it really takes those kind of threads that I've kind of talked about, which is um, these drugs cost so much. Uh, the standards to approve them are, are, seem to be falling. Um, there are many things we do in medicine that seem to be like we're repeating errors from the past. Um, we're really enthusiastic and we hype novel things even before we know they work. Um, we, we say things are miraculous when they may not be. Um, many of the experts are financially tied to the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement policies are Byzantine and make no sense. Mm. And so I take all these strands and over the course of the book, I try to kind of show you why they all connect. And I think, you know, somebody who was an early reader of the book told me, uh, she told me that, um, you know, after I read the first few chapters, she was like, oh, you know, why are you raising, you know, you're raising this point, this point, this point. She was like, what, what, what do all these different things have to do with each other? But by the end of the book, she felt like, oh, I see, you've twisted them all together. They really do tie together. And I think that's the whole point of Malignant is to show you how the entire cancer ecosystem works. How do you get time to write all this? <laughs> you're, you're busy. You're, I know you, you're, you treat patients still. You do the research. I mean, is it more of a just passion for you writing? Or, I mean, because it's got to be hard to fit it in. Yeah, I guess I'd say, I mean, you know, I only write about things that, uh, you know, I know like the back of my hand. So yeah. it's not hard in that way. But uh, it was actually written mostly on airplanes. You know, as a okay. doctor, <laughs> you end up traveling a lot of travel and and sometimes on an airplane when there's no Wi-Fi or, you know, it's the signal's unreliable, the only thing you can do yeah. for some of these flights is just to see, you know, jot down some notes and ideas. And so literally the majority of the book, I think, was written on uh, a bunch of flights I had in the year 2017. It's one of the, like, the last pr uh, productive spaces. The right. The last place you won't be bothered. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. We'll see how long that lasts. Uh, right. So, well... You know, Dr. Prasad, where, where can folks find you? I know on Twitter, your Twitter handle is? At uh, V Prasad MDMPH. Um, and uh, the podcast is Plenary Session. It's on the iTunes store. It's freely available. And uh, the books are both on Amazon, Malignant or Medical Reversal. So, yeah, I'm easy to find. Or if you Google my name, you know, you'll find me uh, by my website. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for hopping on this podcast. It's definitely, you know, interesting times. So we're, again, we're, we're sad to see you leave Portland, but yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to the work you do down there and picking up a copy of the book. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and your audience. All right. Thanks, Dr. Prasad. 
The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of ThatCast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well. Thank you.